personally, on a personal level, I, I crave, you know, things like pickles and, and fermented foods in general. If I don't have them in my diet, I really, I really miss them. And, and yeah, literally it's a physical kind of craving. Um, on a personal note, I, I definitely see the benefits. Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading to the island state of Tasmania to speak to fermentation expert Adam James. Adam uh, makes things, brews things, waits for things to bubble and do their thing under the name of Rough Rice. And he travels around, uh, yeah, creating fermentation themed or I guess focused meals and it's all just very exciting. I'm pretty sure I'm safe in saying you're the only person that is uh, has ever been on this podcast and probably ever will that is also undertaking a mission to Mars and Adam you'll fill us in on all these things. Welcome to Dirty Linen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When people ask you what you do, how do you explain yourself? Oh look, it um it can move in any <laughs> variety of directions, but really, yeah, I work mainly in the realm of vegetable and legume fermentation. Um, I have a particular, I guess, well, interest in um, well, the alchemy of fermentation first and foremost, but also I am quite interested in uh, the capacity of fermentation in minimising food waste. So those are very broadly. I guess the two areas of focus for me. Um, and I do, yeah, very much kind of work with uh, the seasons. So I don't kind of um, have any kind of set products per se. I kind of just work with whatever uh, the local farmers that I kind of work with have in surplus and that kind of dictates, um, I guess, what I make season to season. Fermentation is such an ancient practice and so many foods are fermented. You know, people probably don't, well, sometimes don't realise how they engage with fermentation every single day. But it's also at the same time somehow become, you know, trendy and of the moment. Like how do you reconcile these things if indeed you do? I think, um, you know, first and foremost, um, it's all about, food preservation and so if you look you know back in nearly every culture around the world they they do um yeah as you say ferment different things in different ways um historically that was just so that you know you could store an in-season product so that you could you know eat it throughout the year um and so yeah essentially you know that's kind of i guess where a lot of the fermentation that we're familiar with has stemmed from and there's a deep-rooted history of, you know, fermented foods around the world. Um, I, I, yeah, you're, you're exactly right, though. It is very much kind of on trend um, these days, uh, particularly, you know, there's lots of, um, you know, restaurants who are setting up their own laboratories and a whole lot of uh, focus and interest is being put into food preservation in general, um, specifically in fermentation. And, and I think like, and that was for me as well, what, what really fascinated me was the, the alchemy of transferring one ingredient into something completely different, really just by, uh, you know, time. Um, but it also, you're able to create um, really interesting flavours and textures and, and depth of flavour um, in ways which you just otherwise can't. So uh, as a cook, it's, um, it's really fascinating. So tell me about your first experiment with fermentation. <laughs> um, well, uh, I mean, 
if we're going way back, uh, back in boarding school when I was at the ripe age of 14 or 15, I had a little bootleg operation making Sambuca under my bed in boarding school. Um, <laughs> so that was uh, literally just mixing aniseed essence with warm water and sugar and stashing it under my bed in Coke bottles and, uh, you know, letting it do its thing and then using that as a little bartering tool through boarding school, which, um, you know, was a pretty valid tender back in the day. Um, so that's kind of where my first foray in experimenting with fermentation began. Um, and then a bit later on in life, in uh, I had Tricycle Cafe here in Hobart for, for some time and we used to do a lot of preserving. We were very much tried to, um, you know, serve food that was, you know, of the season and so dealt with lots of gluts of things and, you know, started dabbling in things like sauerkraut and kimchi and hot sauces and that type of thing. And I guess my uh, interest and passion kind of stemmed from there. And, I mean, tell me about how it really engaged you as a, as a chef and a cook. Like what was it about these products that really lit you up? I think it was it was just uh, tasting flavors, which you know I, I've always been really interested in food, and it was coming across these really fascinating flavors and textures, which I just couldn't put my finger on, and I couldn't work out exactly how you know they came to be. And you know, I'd obviously you know eaten soy sauce before and fish sauce, and you know uh, chili condiments and that type of thing, um, and a lot of it actually. I think that initial fascination came from Japan and I have been traveling regularly to Japan for some time, but it was delving a little bit deeper into things like miso and shoyu and there's a chili condiment um, from Nagita province called uh, um, Kanzuri, which is a a chili condiment, which uh, I could probably pinpoint uh, when I kind of completely I guess, turned a page with this kind of interest. And that was, um, yeah, in a, in a sake bar in Kyoto called Yoromu. And they had this little kanzuri on some fresh tofu. And I just had it and it was just, it just literally blew my mind how delicious and punchy it was. And and I pretty much there and then was like, I need to, to learn more about this. Wow. Oh, my goodness. That's so exciting. I mean, what can you describe it i mean and, and what is the process like how does it become so incredible yeah oh, look I, I could talk about it for days um All right we've got so days it's, <laughs> so it's a basically it's it's been going um for well several hundred years i believe back to kind of edo period but it's um from nagita which is a very uh you know uh can be a very cold area of japan and they get togarashi chilies and they actually bury them in snow um, and this draws out kind of the amino acids and the sugars, and then they mix this kind of uh, chili. They kind of paste it up and then mix that with koji and yuzu zest, and then they age it historically, you know, at least one, two plus years. And it just forms this like intensely fragrant, spicy, citrusy, umami rich little condiment. And um, just the tiniest little bit can just elevate anything, um, you know, spectacularly good with uh, seafood and such things. Um, and, yeah, it's, a, it's, you know, one of absolutely 
one of my top three condiments in the world. And I, I do try and replicate it, but you know, it's, it's a bit harder to bury chilies in snow, albeit in Tasmania. So I'm, you know, seeking alternative, uh, you know, methodology, but yeah, it's, um, it's, I, I highly recommend seeking it out. Wow. I just love it. I mean, yeah, to me, it just, when I eat fermented products that really just like transport me, there's something about this. It's sort of this multidimensional quality to them where I feel like there's the, there's all the culture haha um behind them you know which you know that that historical or social um yeah culture that's behind them and where the ingredients have come from but then there's also the the way that fermentation uh just adds all these different layers of flavor and and i guess time to something that you're eating uh and then yeah it's like where does it take you in terms of flavor and then there's also i think um like I'd never really eat things just for health, but I think there is something quite tangible about this, you know, this thing that bubbles away in your gut and just, um, you just, I don't know, it does feel like it's going to be doing some good down there, right? Absolutely. Look, I, um, I'm no, you know, kind of nutrition expert or doctor, so I, I'm reluctant to, to delve too much into that side of things, but... I do. I mean, personally, on a personal level, I, I crave, um, you know, things like pickles and, and fermented foods in general. And I, you know, I, if I don't have them in my diet, I really, I really miss them. And, and yeah, literally it's a physical kind of craving and I put my general kind of well-being down to, you know, not just my diet, you know, getting a bit of exercise and that type of thing as well. But I, I definitely think, um, you know, that they play a big role in, yeah, I guess my day-to-day living. Um, And, you know, that there has been a lot of studies as well between, um, you know, that connection between gut health and mental health. Uh, And I've had, you know, friends who've kind of similarly have changed their diets. Um, You know, people who've been suffering things like anxiety and depression and, and even narcolepsy and have found that through you know, changing their diet to, to have, uh, you know, richer content of fermented foods has really helped them in, in various ways. So yeah, w- without kind of preaching about it too much, I think, um, on a personal note, I, I definitely, um, see the benefits. Mm, yeah. That's so interesting. Um, so as a person who's obsessed with fermentation, how do you turn this into a like a series of businesses or enterprises that, you know, means that you can just keep doing more of what you love? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, I've spent the last, well, close to six years pretty much avoiding getting a real job as I see it. Um, so I, you know, I run this little fermentary from home. I've got a commercial kitchen here and I kind of, you know, base everything from here. Um, and I, I do do markets. I'm now only doing them kind of monthly at the moment at the Farmgate market down here and kind of, uh, sell condiments and also some food on site, be it congee or rice bowls, depending on the season. And, um, and then I kind of more recently, I've started doing what I call condiment collective, which is a, a send out, which happens kind of bi-monthly. Uh, all sold through Instagram and I just do little kind of box sets. Uh, the most recent of which was I called the spicy seven pack. So 
just seven different fermented chilies um, and, yeah, just kind of sell them through Instagram. They all tend to move pretty quickly um, and then we just literally jar them up, send them out and, um, yeah, that's that's kind of how most of the, the product is kind of moved these days. Yeah. So this is probably not a bad time to talk about Mission to Mars. Yes. Well, true. So that's um, Mission to Mars was kind of a COVID project. Uh, which has <laughs> turned quite uh, into obsession. Um, so Mission to Mars is basically, um, for lack of a better description, it's, it's kind of like a two-minute noodles, but it's a, it's a congee. Uh, so initially it was kind of designed for the kind of outdoor adventure kind of market, um, and it's basically a really nutrient-dense uh, congee that you can just add hot water into the bag, uh, give it a couple of minutes, stir it up, and then add in a little seasoning sachet and then eat it straight out of the bag. Um, So it's really lightweight. But the kind of, I guess, the really interesting part for me um, and where I kind of got really obsessive was just trying to cram as much nutrition into a bag as possible. So um, it's got all sorts of things from... Uh, you know, there's different seaweeds, there's, you know, quinoa, hemp protein, hemp seeds, uh, buckwheat, um, or an array of different fermented vegetables and some freeze-dried chili. And yeah, anyway, it's a, it's a, been a, uh, a couple of years in the making and hopefully it'll be, you know, hitting the shelves um, within the next six months, fingers crossed. That's so exciting. I mean... You know, as you talk about it, I feel like the world probably has been waiting for this. Well, we'll see, I guess. Um, it's been, you know, it's this is very beyond anything I've kind of done before in a completely different kind of landscape of kind of food production. So it is, it's been a really interesting ride and I've had lots of uh, very helpful friends who kind of work in the industry who I've kind of, you know, lent on for, for feedback and... Um, yeah, I kind of feel like it's finally coming together and, you know, I'm working with a, a huge kind of freeze-drying operation in northern Tasmania and we're just fine-tuning a few bits and pieces. And, yeah, and then just, you know, the, the fun part of, you know, the branding and the packaging and all that kind of jazz. So, yeah, coming together. It's so exciting because, yeah, I mean, two-minute noodles, obviously, are, are massive and, uh, you know, a lot of people would always have them on hand, but I think no one really thinks about them as a nutritious food. Uh, and, yeah, like rice is just so elemental and fundamental and and great. I'm sure, it, yeah, it just seems yeah, it just seems so obvious as you talk about it that someone should be doing this. So, yeah, I'm really, really happy that it's you and I'm so excited to try it. Thank you. Well, when it's ready, I'll, I'll be sure to, to send one your direction. Um, yeah, good. So I don't have to go on a mission to Mars to actually try it. That's good. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> not. not. Hopefully not that not. I'm averse to that. If someone wanted to put me in a rocket, I'd probably jump on. Adam, tell us about the pop-up uh, food events that you do as well. Yeah, so I think uh, – Oh, that's something that I've always kind of enjoyed doing. Um, so collaborating with different people and just putting on uh, the, I kind of look at it as just doing fun stuff. And that's what I try to always incorporate in my life, be it on a private or a work kind of level. 
And so, yeah, I've kind of always done, you know, just organized, uh, you know, little pop-ups here and there um, within Australia, did a few in Europe and had a few in Japan. And yeah, just, I I just really enjoy challenging myself, but also, um, yeah, having an opportunity to work with different sets of ingredients and working with different people um, from different cultural backgrounds. And yeah, it's, it's something that I've kind of certainly relished over the last, you know, six or seven years um, and have really missed, I guess, through kind of the COVID period. So it's really great to kind of be back on that little train at the moment. Um, And yeah, like I've got a a little pop-up happening at Hope Street Radio this coming Saturday, which is really exciting. And um, following that, heading over to Adelaide up in the hills for a topsoil event. So yeah, just really nice to be back on the road and um, doing fun stuff. And when you think about, you know, crafting a meal or a menu around fermented products, like how do you, how do you do that? Like where do you start and how do you, yeah, how do you make sure it's a great eating experience for people? Well, I think it, it very much depends on the context of where and when and how, but um, like for, for these coming couple of things, it's all, I'm literally, um, you know, I've bought, bringing the ute over uh, to Melbourne and I've just loaded that on pretty much just going around my house and looking at what's kind of looking really good at the moment. So I've managed to, yeah, just kind of jar up a whole heap of different things from, um, you know, there's a bunch of pickles which have been going for, you know, six to 12 months. And then there's, you know, hot sauce, which is going on eight years, which is coming over. And so it's pretty much just looking at what's looking good and then kind of, working my way back. Um, so for, for the couple of things coming up, um, they're going to be much more casual events. So it's not really like a sit down fine dining experience. So it's going to be, yeah, essentially based on like a, a rice bowl. So just going to be doing a big, you know, batch of fried rice really. And then having these as all different condiments that go on top. So there's going to be yeah, like 10 different little condiments and pickles, um, on, on a fried rice, essentially. Oh, that sounds so good. I would honestly <laughs> smash that this actual minute. Um, I yeah. love it. So, Adam, I think we should also mention that you were the recipient of a Churchill Fellowship and travelled around the world looking and eating and researching fermentation. I mean, those those um, fellowships are not given out willy-nilly, so it's an amazing achievement that you secured one, and I'm sure a lot of stuff came out of it. Can you tell us a bit about it? So the Churchill Fellowship was an amazing opportunity for me. It was something that I was encouraged by a friend to apply for and kind of went through the application process, not really thinking that I was in with much of a chance. It's mainly, well, often given out to the sciences and medicine and et cetera. Anyhow, um, yeah, it was was a wonderful opportunity and coincided with the sale of uh, the cafe that, you know, I'd kind of had for a long time. So it was a real kind of turning of the page. Um, and I spent the best part of a year kind of coordinating and organizing the trip. Um, so it started in Copenhagen and spent some time at uh, Raleigh and Amass. Unfortunately, Noma was in their transitional period, so that kind of never eventuated. But um, then from there went over to Italy and uh, had a, a couple of weeks looking uh, mainly at uh, balsamic vinegar 
um, Reggiano and Colatello. So the the holy trinity of Emilia Romagna, which was oh my god, that is really my absolute. <laughs> It was a dream. Trove. It was an absolute dream. <laughs> and I can't wait to go back there. Yeah, I am obsessed with the way that they make balsamic vinegar in Modena. So can I just interrupt your journey for you to explain that that process? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, again, you know, that's another one of my, my top three condiments, without a doubt. Um, so, yeah, it, an age-old process. Historically, it's, you know, made from uh, Lambrusco and or Trebbiano grapes, which get picked and then they um, basically get juiced and then the the juice itself will get cooked down to generally around two-thirds of its initial um, I guess mass, and then that will get fermented into wine, and then in turn acidified and turned into vinegar. So it'll usually sit in a. In a sorry, I'm getting quite technical here, but um, sit in yeah, like an open barrel for a year, and then it gets moved into the batteria, which is that series of different casks, um, which is generally upstairs, and um, yeah, a series of casks. Uh, from five or seven different uh, woods and then, um, you know, to, to be a proper DOC balsamico, you know, you're looking minimum 12 to 15 years and then, you know, anywhere from 25 to 30 years for, for a gold. And, um, you know, it's one of these really incredible processes which, you know, it, it just fascinates me that someone has gone to that length to, to make vinegar of all things um and yet the complexity and depth of flavor in a good balsamico really just it can't be replicated and you look at you know what what is actually a, a real balsamic vinegar is you know far less than one percent of what is sold commercially as balsamic vinegar around the world so it's such a precious thing and a lot of the, the vinegar makers that i met um around Modena and emilia romagna they they run at a loss to to pursue their craft and um, but are still, you know, uh, carrying on the tradition because it, it means so much to them and that's what it's all about. Yeah, I mean, when you, you know, talk about the multidimensionality of a fermented product, I mean, that is to me, I mean, that's probably the one that I've connected most with having, you know, been there and been in those lofts. And I think it's important to say that they're in, they're in homes. So it's like the yeah. architecture of the region is designed around a condiment. Like it is yeah. just so special. It's, it really uh, is. Yeah, it's amazing. Anyway, so you continue on your journey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from, yeah, from Emilia-Romagna down to Shatara, which is a little fishing village on the Amalfi Coast. And that's the, um, well, the modern, well, not even modern day, since Roman times has been where they make um, Colatura di Alisi, which is the um, fish sauce from Italy, which kind of fed the Roman Empire. And then before that actually came from Tunisia. Um, but it's, you know, it's the most, it's the best fish sauce uh, in the world that I've ever come across. And it's all just made from anchovies caught in the area and, you know, fermented in barrel. And then they just poke a little hole in the barrel and it's it's drip filtered. And anyway, another incredible condiment from Italy, also vying for the, the world's oldest condiment, um, along with soy sauce in China. So there's a bit of, bit of debate in that area. Um, and then speaking of China, that's actually where I went to next on the trip. Um, so based mainly in uh, Sichuan province 
um, around Pixian, which is where the home of Dobanjang. Um, Dobanjang being the, it's a paste made of broad beans, chili and salt, and chu, which is the Chinese equivalent of koji. And um, that's the kind of, I guess, uh, you know, the, the base of things like a, a mapo tofu or a um, dry fried green beans, that type of thing, which we, I guess, are familiar with in Cantonese, uh, sorry, Sichuanese cuisine. Um, but it's that little secret ingredient um, which doesn't really get much attention. But, yeah, it's one of another one of my all-time favourites. So, yeah, a few weeks in China looking at that and other kind of pickles and vinegars. Um, China, incidentally, I kind of spent four years growing up in um, way back in the 80s. So it was really nice to kind of get back over there and, and um, I guess, reminisce about some of my childhood. Um, and then following China, went over to Korea, uh, spent a month or best part of a month um, looking at all sorts of, you know, different um, gochujangs and um, ganjangs and different pickles and kimchis, of course. I uh, got to go and stay with John Kwan um, at her temple um, down in Pankyangsa, which was incredible, life-changing. Um, Explain then, who that is for people who don't know. Uh, so John Kwan is a, she, well, first and foremost, a monk, a Buddhist monk. Um, I guess she rose to international fame through Netflix. She had that an episode on Chef's Table, um, which, you know, I guess she kind of shed light on her philosophy towards not only food but fermentation and, and life in general. And uh, I had one of the most incredible, I guess, dishes of my life. You know, I turned up on a close to 40-degree day, had to walk up half a mountain to get to where she lives and she met my friend and I with a bowl of um, buckwheat noodles, uh, which she basically just cooked and then covered in cubes of ice. And then she just took us around the crocs on her balcony and just got a little bit of juice from probably half a dozen different crocs and added it into this kind of little potion and then poured it over the noodles. And it was the most... I don't know if it was just the context of where we were and who we were eating with, but it literally just was the most cleansing and restorative thing I think I've ever eaten. It was oh my god! I'm truly amazing. So <laughs> blown away by that story. Oh my yeah, goodness. it was. It was one of those like I can still remember that first taste, and I'm sure I always will. Wow. Um, yeah. So that was that was really like amazing to spend a few days there and just kind of. Um, just sharing food, really, and and kind of talking philosophy, and um, and then from there went to China, uh, sorry, to Japan, and um, yeah, spent you know another five weeks, um, really jumping headfirst into um, first and foremost uh, koji and miso making. So I got to to learn off a fifth generation koji maker and he taught me miso. And then um, I was invited to join. There's a, a essentially like a grandma pickle club of Kyoto. And I was invited to go and hang out with them for a couple of days, which was probably one of the highlights of my life. That was just 
beautiful. <laughs> and um, they were just fascinated that this, you know, hairy white man was so interested in, you know, traditional Japanese pickles. And um, they, you know, embraced me and welcomed me. And it was really, it was a really beautiful time. Um, and yeah, all sorts of different things in between. There was um, like narazushi, which is the precursor to modern day sushi, but um, involved fermented fish. So that's from kind of the Lake Biwa area north of Kyoto and making shibazuke in Ohara, which is a very traditional um, pickle made from eggplant and shiso. And yeah, so, so many things, so many things. Oh my goodness. I just, I mean, food is like always the best way to, you know, focus and plan a trip, but I just feel like it's so deep, all these things you're talking about that is at the heart of, you know, people's lives and, you know, who they, who they are. I just cannot, it just sounds like so many peak life experiences just layered one after another, just so amazing. there was very little free time in between them. It was, I kind of, you know, I really wanted to make the most of the opportunity. And, um, yeah, fortunately I just had some really, um, helpful people along the way, people who kind of send all cats for one was like a, a huge help, um, connecting me with people in China and, um, yeah, just people were incredibly, um, yeah, helpful in just putting me in touch with different people along the way and, and written recommendations and yeah, the, the whole thing was a bit of a dream um, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Can, yeah, can totally feel that. Um, Adam, if there's one uh, ferment that people wanted to have a go at, you know, that perhaps hadn't done anything like that before, what would you suggest? Well, I always look at, um, uh, you know, something like sauerkraut is, you know, as, as Sandor cats would say, it's, it's the gateway ferment. It's something that's so, so simple to do and you get quite quick results. It's really delicious. Um, and it's really versatile. And so I think for anyone who's never dabbled in fermentation at all before, you know, get a hold of Sandor's book and, um, and start there. Um, for me personally, Look, I, I enjoy so many different areas of fermentation. I'm not sure that I could actually pinpoint <laughs> um, one thing. I, I think uh, Dobanjang, which I talked about before, the Sichuanese um, broad bean, that's probably up there with one of my favourites still. Um, it is probably the most labour-intensive as well in terms of because um, I like to use fresh broad beans, so there's a whole lot of potting involved, um, but that's all part of the fun as well. Love it. Adam, it's been so great to get an insight into what drives you and, yeah, all the microbes that you hang out with. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for taking us into the rough rice world uh, today. It's, yeah, really appreciate you sharing your story with the Dirty Linen crew. Absolute pleasure. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is...